Welcome to Bits About Books, the home for conversations with authors of breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. Founders, entrepreneurs and individual professionals, we all need to keep track of ideas that are helping create our today and tomorrow. Bits About Books will strive to find those books and speak to their authors, go behind the scenes and understand what inspired the authors to write the books that they did and how they went about doing so. Through our conversations, we hope to gain insights that will help us to get the most out of our efforts. I'm your host Shubhanjan Sarkar, founder of Pitchlink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform where our mission is to make buying easy. Welcome to Bits About Books. Thank you for your time and for joining us in this session. I have a favor to ask. While you continue to listen to the podcast, please leave a comment or rating at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I personally look at each comment and will give you a shout out to each of you in our following episodes. It means a lot to hear from you. Our guest today is Mark Boundy and we speak to him about his bestseller, Radical Value, Elevate Your Company and Career by Unleashing the Power Within Customer Centricity. If I asked 25 people in your company, what is the definition of value? I would get at least 30 definitions. So if we're going to lead a company, if we're going to talk about value, if we're going to coach our salespeople to value, we better just start with a consistent definition. Value is about customer outcomes. Customers do not buy our products or services. They buy their own outcomes for their own reasons. And so value is the desirability of those outcomes that a customer perceives they're going to achieve when they do business with us. Mark wrote, Radical Value, Elevate Your Company and Career by Unleashing the Power Within Customer Centricity. While excelling in sales, marketing, product and executive roles, Mark learned the importance of focusing on customer perceived value. Value focus wins more, better customers at the right prices and creates winning, rewarding cultures. His firm, Boundy Consulting LLC, helps its clients find, win and keep more business, more effectively and more profitably. Mark lives in Phoenix, Arizona and is father of two grown sons. Now, on to the stimulating discussion on radical value with Mark Boundy. Mark, welcome to Bits About Books. I'm so happy that uh, I could have you in for a discussion about your very, very important book. And we'll come to why it is important later as we speak. I am so thrilled that you could make time. Welcome. Sapanjan, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for uh, all of the work and making sure that in, in getting this arranged. Most welcome. Before we actually dive in, would you like to talk about Boundary Consulting and what you are doing currently? Yeah, um, I consult with companies uh, who sell business to business. All my clients are uh, sell B2B. And most of my clients, almost all of my clients work on work away from a transactional end of the B2B spectrum and towards that highly consultative, trusted expert even, you know, the, the the half of the spectrum is considered consultative, but the the far end of that spectrum is trusted expert where, and in fact, 20%, 21%, according to some research I've seen um, repeated a couple of years apart, is 21% of B2B customers will call a salesperson in during the stage of their buying process called understand my needs. That's before even generate alternatives and way before compare and refine alternatives. And so even in these days of going out to the internet and in, in, uh, informing yourself, 21% of the time, salespeople are called in to be a trusted expert. You know, imagine a customer who's going through understanding their own needs, they call a salesperson in and that salesperson in starts selling against their competitors. You know, the the disconnect is profound. And so I help companies uh, not do that. I also help uh, companies avoid discounting price to value, uh, price more profitably, sell value. Wonderful. So let me start at the beginning. Why this book? And when did this strike you that you need to put your work 
into a book, a framework, whatever you call it? When did it strike you first? Well, it struck me very slowly. Um, <laughs> what's the old saying? It happened very slowly and then very quickly. Um, my first big boy job out of college was with a company that was relentless, was maniacal about understanding customer value. And for better or for worse, I thought that was the way that you did business. And then uh, through a long career of working at other companies, very famous companies, very highly successful companies, uh, companies that you know of uh, that are you know famous and uh, and then consulting with being a sales performance consultant with the world's largest sales training company, I worked with even more very large companies. And throughout all of those years and years of experience, I saw that maniacal, relentless focus on value as something that was missing in every other sale. Um, can I tell you a story? Yes, please. I was I was working for one of the big sales training companies, and I was working for uh, doing a, a sales training course for salespeople at a Fortune 50 company that everybody knows. And I was kind of going beyond the Miller-Hyman sales training and for free, giving them some of my how-to-sell value because you know, the Miller-Hyman stuff, 10% of the Miller-Hyman stuff is value and I'm 100% value and value is 100% of why customers buy. So I just wanted to help customers take, you know, the Miller-Hyman 10% of overview of value and get some more detail. So I was giving more detail and the vice president of sales for that company, my client, the vice president of sales at my client stopped me, he interrupted me, he said, Mark, 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 stop, stop, stop. You're describing elite selling. And right now, I just want the group to get good. So just stick with the script, go with good. The underlying assumption he was making is there's always going to be 10, maybe 15% of your sellers in every and in every, every sales force that do this elite selling that you've just been describing, but we're never going to get to all of them. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this first job where we were all relentless about value, there was a hundred percent of the sales force did elite selling. Mm. And so just because the company culture and the expectations were there, a hundred percent of the sellers were elite sellers and could sell value and price to value. So I knew from experience that that conventional wisdom that, well, you're going to get maybe, you know, 15% of your sellers are that good. And the rest, you're just going to have to muddle through. I called, you know, internally, I called BS. And I said, what a lost opportunity for that company. And so that was kind of a trigger event. But as you can imagine, it, it had built up over many years with that foundation of really having a strong understanding of value, building value, selling value, pricing value, and then seeing it never practiced anywhere else mm -hmm. over dozens and then hundreds of companies. And I thought people need that. So I started working on it. This is great because what you just described is literally the crux of all the B2B sales problems. It is. We are. We 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 want to put a quota. We want to put. Uh, we 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 want people to make more calls. We want robocalls. We want everything except this. We want activity, not progress. Exactly. Exactly. And no wonder, Mark. You see, I was speaking to somebody yesterday. The average tenure of a VP of sales is eighteen months. Yes. No wonder. Um, oh, it's there's all kinds of that's frightening. Uh, another frightening thing I've, I'll be talking later today, I hope, with uh, Barry Trailer, who founded CSO Insights, who is mm -hmm. uh, the the preeminent research house for sales training. Think of Gartner or Forrester right. for sales, right? And research into sales. And um, before he sold CSO Insights to Miller Hyman, he did a 
he had the same tracking survey because he wanted to ask one question every year to see what's changed. And the question was, do you have any portion of your company's sales compensation plan tied to deal profitability? And for years, he said for 20 years that he'd been doing that, um, the percentage hovered around 25% of companies saying yes. Hmm. 75% of companies, the vice president of sales was not paid to care whether the company made a profit. Incredible. For those same 25, some for those same 20 years, vice presidents of sales were whining that they didn't get a seat at the executive table. <laughs> and yet they ran the only department that didn't care about profit. Mm. And they would never con- they you don't connect those. Right. And holy smokes. That so I I kind of think I'm helping vice presidents of sales break out of that mm. perception of uh not being a contributor to the corporate success. Absolutely. Let's get back to the book. So so you sort of this was in the making, you had this attachment to the idea of radic- radical value. Yeah. But but you see that people actually want to be subpar they want to be not that or they believe that only a few in their team would be able to achieve it the rest should like plot along when did you sort of think that okay now i need to sort of put it down and start working on it and and when did it occur to you that i i need to write a book on this um you know i always thought that there was a book in it i i and I have a personal pet peeve mm-hmm. about the business book that is a you know 20 pages worth of content in a 250 page package. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh the fluff yeah. the fluff read that you can skim and still get all of it. <laughs> yeah. Um mm. I'm I, I don't know if I'm cheap and just hate the waste of paper or hate the idea that I paid this much for a book that I could have really purchased as a pamphlet um right so i'm a i'm a grumpy old man i guess that way and so i wanted any book i wrote to be more than that to be information dense Mm. um and that's kind of a curse you know i actually had one of my reviewers say mark man this is really dense stuff and you know i think he was trying to politely say you need to break this down into two or three books but I took it as a compliment. I'm like, I want the language to be simple. I want the sentence to be short and the word small so that, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a 12th grade or a seventh grade reader can grasp it. But I want the ideas to still be there. Sure. I, I want the content behind. I, I want to describe them simply, but I don't want to just write a lot of fluff. I just, ugh. I can't Fair I enough. don't care for that. So so when you when you sort of got down to this how did you go about structuring? So obviously when you're talking of uh, a dense sales book I would like to believe that you went into various areas of research you had ideas which you need to back up with more data it couldn't have been only with what you have in your mind yeah. so you had a had a hypothesis I guess and then you wanted to go back and find more information and so on and so forth how, how did this process actually happen yeah so i when i was at that company where i learned about value i was not a salesperson i was a product manager so i managed a business and radical value is not strictly speaking a sales book radical value is my manifesto for business it is the business theory of everything Mm. And I start the book with the per- with the statement that the purpose of every business, profit or nonprofit, is to create more value for your customers than it costs you to deliver. Yeah. Seems simple, says easy, does hard. But the idea now is I can go to a CEO and ask them, all right, in your dashboard, the numbers you take a look at over coffee every morning. How many of those have to do with the value you're delivering customers? Mm. If that is the core portion, if, if that is the core purpose for every business, shouldn't some of that be 
some of your dashboard be around value and not inventory turns or scrap rates or, <laughs> or sales rates? Shouldn't there be something about the value? And there isn't. And so I wanted to tell CEOs, you need to manage your entire company around value the way we did at this company. Uh, vice presidents of sales. How do you lead? How do you create expectations? Salespeople, how do you sell? How do you execute this? Um, marketing directors, you know, people in the marketing role, how do you play into this? It's not sales versus marketing. It's customer value. It's not sales wins or marketing wins. It's the customer value wins. And you should be doing your job to that. So neither of you win. The logic is all right, here's value. Here's how important value is. Here's how value grows in the mind of your customer. Here's uh, how, and now if you are in a given role, here's how your role plays into that. Uh, here's how to sell it. Uh, here's what you need to know as a salesperson in order to sell it well. Um, here's how to price it. And here's some of the operational processes you need to do in order to actually tie your organization together as a value-focused organization. So I, I talk about the value-focused organization. And sales is not one, and sales is one of the silos in an organization that I, I wrote the book for, but sales can't sell value unless the rest of the company is delivering and practicing value focus. No, fair enough. So I, I stand corrected on that. Uh, no, it's it's a great question, and and um, I sell most of my books to vice presidents of sales and sales organizations, and I do most of my work as sales training. So it's uh, it's understandable. But then people get into the book and say, "Oh my gosh, I have to get a copy for the head of operations for the head of finance." Right, right. Uh, no, I, I can completely understand because see, it's sort of like customer centricity that cannot be only with the sales guys or the delivery guys it 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 has to be an organizational culture right yeah uh, i think what you're saying is something very similar i mean if if as an organization you're not not focused on value only the sales department or the i don't know the after sales department cannot be value centric yeah you're no you're absolutely right uh when i started in business too many years ago to mention um the company I worked at had five roles that regularly touched the customer. And two of them had the word sales in their title. So two of them were sales roles. Three of them, you know, one of them was me, the product manager and, and uh, so, and, you know, installation and so forth. Today, I have clients that regularly have clients that have 12 roles that regularly touch the customer. So we've we've taken that customer in it. We've taken all of our companies and we've subdivided them and siloed and sub-siloed and sometimes turned them into soda straws. <laughs> and so it's very common for 12 to 15 roles to regularly touch your customer. So we went from five to 12 from two roles of the five having sales titles to three roles of the 12. Mm. It is now the case that sales is a minority shareholder in the customer interface. Yeah. And if you asked your customer to rank from most trusted to least trusted, the 12 roles that are the 15 roles that touch the customer, where do you think sales ranks in terms of trust? Uh, you don't want me to say that, do you? Well, yeah. Well, we all know that they're going to be in the bottom half, probably yeah. the bottom third, yeah. maybe the bottom two. But um, and in terms of regular contact, the people with more trust and more contact with your customer, more hours of contact, talk to people within your customer that sales will never talk to, much less have a relationship with. So if you think about my organization versus my customer organization, and if I tell my salespeople, you're the only ones who should be talking about value, everybody else, stay in your lane, do your job and get back to the office, <laughs> right? We are wasting a lot of customer intelligence. Imagine, you know, being in the military 
and you've got 12 of your military unit, your squad, your, you know, your company have eyes on the enemy. But you say, well, I'm only going to get the information from you too. <laughs> would would you do that? You you'd never do that. And yeah. so, but we do that now. And with the division of laborers, with management, with process and with best practices, we tell everybody who has trusted, irreplaceably trusted relationships with a customer, shut up, stay in your lane, do your job and get back to the office. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So so at some point, you you decided that this whole idea needs to be sort of broken down into chapters and you I can see that you arrived at 12 chapters. Uh, how did that happen, actually? I mean, actually, what? how did you go about doing that? Boy, that was actually a struggle. Um, and I don't know if I would do it again because uh, the, the logical flow is here's here's why value is important. Here's, a, you know, a little more detail on how it grows and uh, here's how to sell it. Here's how to price it. And here's how to run a company. Hmm. Um, and then actually uh, near the front of the book, right in the front matter of the book, I actually have a uh, a listing saying, here's how to consume this book. If you're the CEO, I want you to read these two chapters, skim mm. this, these couple chapters, and you can skip these or just read the summary. Right. Uh, if you're marketing, read, skip, skim. Mm. If you're in sales, read, skim, skip. If you're sales leadership, read. And so, yeah. um, and, nice. and some of those things go back and forth. And so I wanted the different audiences of my book to realize you don't have to read all of everything. Um, And so how to organize that is there was always a bunch of trade-offs. So the book follows an organized narrative, but depending on which role you have in an organization, that narrative makes a little bit less sense. And I I at least wanted to put a, a, a reader's guide at the front of the book to help people uh, make more sense given their role in the organization. Lovely. So let's start talking about the book and let's start with value. My first question before you actually tell me what value is, is that would you actually equate value and customer outcome as the same place or are these two different things? They are almost identical to the same thing. And thank you for talking about that. Um, I always tell people, I'm going to give you my throwaway line before I start um, if I asked 25 people in your company, what is the definition of value? I would get at least 30 definitions. So if we're going to lead a company, if we're going to talk about value, if we're going to coach our salespeople to value, we better just start with a consistent definition. And there's some great definitions out there. Somebody, uh, a good friend of mine has a really pithy, simple definition of what a customer will pay. Mm. It's true, but it's not particularly actionable. (laughs) How do I get a customer to want to pay more? And so um, you you hit it exactly right, Subhanjan. Value is about customer outcomes. Customers do not buy our products or services. They buy their own outcomes for their own reasons. Yeah. And so value is the desirability of those outcomes Mm. that a customer perceives they're going to achieve when they do business with us. Boy, that's a wordy, clumsy definition, but um, it has perceive in there, Mm. which tells marketing a whole lot about what the job is. Um, It has perceives they'll achieve, which tells a whole lot about sales and, and product folks. and. It has outcomes which tell the product designers and the and the product implementers and everybody in operations that we are working for a customer outcome, not making a product. Yeah. Um, so value is the desirability measured monetarily in rupees, in dollars, in euros, in yuan, the desirability in uh, measured monetarily of the outcomes. Mm. So if my product reduces risk, most salespeople will tell the customer we reduce the risk. 
and then expect the customer to buy. Good salespeople will tell the customer it reduces risk and then ask the customer to confirm. Very good, great salespeople will ask the customer to describe all those risks. Mm. Elite salespeople will ask them to quantify those risks. On that risk, how much do you spend every year? And how much do you lose every year based on that risk? And by what percentage do you think we could reduce this together if we were to do business together? Well, that's a $20 million a year risk. And I think you could reduce it easily by 10%. Okay, $20 million times 10%. That's $2 million in value. The salespeople, the good, great, and excellent salespeople who don't actually monetarily measure that a customer will say, yeah, I, I'm going to reduce risk. And maybe they're convinced that it will reduce risk, but they don't know how much they'll pay until you ask them so many questions that the answers come back in dollars, in rupees. Yeah, totally makes sense because you have to help them arrive at that. And then they will see whether paying you $100,000 to solve that is worth the $2 million they'll save or not and whatever. Yeah. Um, in the human mind, human beings, uh, perceptual psychologists say the human mind chooses very efficient ways to get on with things. And so we won't do the math if we can just say, yeah, I'm going to reduce risk and I spend a lot. That's a really painful thing for me. I'll just, I'll buy it or I won't buy it. Mm. And that's good. But only until you actually quantify it, do they say, I'll buy it at this price. And not only will I buy it at this price, but if you haven't quantified it in the customer's mind and your competitor comes in with a 15% discount, but they aren't going to reduce that risk, um, there's such a thing as having built so much value that you become competitor proof. Um, I had a client that sold commercial carpet and their carpet lasts a little bit longer, 20% longer. And customers without being prompted knew how to buy in what I call dollars per year. The carpet's going to last this long and now it's going to last this long plus times, you know, plus 20%. And so I will pay 19% more from that for that carpet. 15% 15% more if the competitor drops their price by 4%. Mm. Right? Yeah. How, however, we taught the salespeople to start asking, what is this carpet sitting underneath? And if it was something like, you know, the extreme example is the carpet is sitting underneath my 24 by 7 by 365 customer service department. Then you ask the customer, tell me about the process of replacing carpet. Mm. What does that look like? What is the business disruption? Mm. How much does that business disruption cost? And underneath that carpet, underneath the 24 by 7 by 365, the value of carpet that lasts 20% longer is six times the price of the carpet. Your competitor not only can't discount it, they can't give it away for free. They can't give it away for free plus the next three replacement cycles. Right. Now, you know, that that carpet is, you know, X percentage of the entire carpet. So you have to mix that with in the conference room where we just replace the carpet over the weekend and I pay a little bit of overtime. Yeah. Um. So there's a, you know, you can't charge five times the price for that carpet, but you can make that price. You you can start to make whatever your premium price is competitor proof. Now, if a competitor can't come in and drop their price by 4%, they can't come in and drop it by 20%. Mm. Because you actually walk the customer through the cost of the business disruption, which is Something that a customer gets and gets very easily. It's an easy conversation to walk the customers through, but human beings get on with it very quickly. Mm. And so if you say we last 20% longer, I'll buy it on dollars per year. That's easy. I can buy that. I can make that decision done. I don't have to go through all of the mental gymnastics of thinking about business disruption. Yeah. But I will, if you, as the salesperson, walk me through that math, 
Yeah. I'm happy to do that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that also justifies my ability to buy from you again, which reduces exactly. that mental pressure the next time. Right. It, it, it reduces the mental pressure next time. And once I have quantified that advantage and quantified the pain of the of the business disruption, my preference for you goes up at a higher price. Tell any traditional econ professor how that works, and they will give you a very academic, sophisticated version of harumph, harumph. <laughs> right. Moving on, uh, let's talk about uh, from value, you are talking of a radically value-focused company. Yes. So you take a company X and you say, we want to be value-focused as a company. Yes. It is, it, I, I can't imagine it's, it's going to be a very easy transformation, or is it? It's a very difficult transformation. And... But that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. You know, this first company I was with did it, but had been founded on those principles. And um, when I was there, it was, you know, from year 27 through 30 something, you know, for I was there for close to 10 years. And so the company was 30, 35 years old while and doing it well, but they had been doing it since their inception. Um, and they were a big multi-billion dollar company with thousands and thousands of employees, but they had started doing it right. Um, smaller companies have an easier job doing that. Uh, the bigger you are, the less like the, the more difficult it is and the stronger a leader it takes. Yeah. Uh, but we can get people start with the sales force and then start with sales and marketing and then get the product managers in and then get the CFO in uh, to understand pro pricing and discounting. So you can, you can, um, you don't have to do a one-time um, change the corporate culture uh, monolithically. You can, you can slip it in in steps. It's time for a short break. Stay with us. After the break, I have one client where one of the executive vice presidents for a year before they found me, before we connected, this uh, vice president was walking around to everybody in the entire organization with the mantra, profit margin equals customer perceived value minus cost to deliver. That leader had already started the mindset of the reason we exist is to deliver customer value. He had just kind of mathematically transposed my rule of business that the purpose of every business is to create more value for a customer than it costs you to deliver. You are listening to a Business Podcast Network original. Podcasting is the fastest growing content marketing opportunity, which is untapped. We can help you craft your audio strategy and help leverage the wide reach and easy streaming capability that the smartphone penetration provides. It is easy, it is powerful and personal. Talk to us to find out how podcasting can help you build your brand and reach out to your targets like never before. Write to us at bpn at bizcast.in that is bpn at biz C-A-S-T dot I-N. Business Podcast Network. Podcasts end to end. Welcome back. I'm Shubhanjan Sarkar, your host for Bits About Books and founder of Pitchlink, the buyer-seller engagement platform. Let's dive right back into the episode where we left it. And what kind of mindset shift does it need? I mean, even if it has to start with the sales, it still has to come from the CEO or the, man the, the, the leadership, right? Yeah. The leadership has to buy in and look at that path. Exactly. Um, I have one client where one of the executive vice presidents for a year before they found me, before we connected, this uh, vice president was walking around to everybody in the entire organization with the mantra, profit margin equals customer perceived value minus cost to deliver. And it's that's true. It's a mathematical truthhood. Mm. But now, how are you going to make that happen? Well, you have to learn how to understand customer value. You have to learn how to price the customer value. We're really good at the cost to deliver part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But 
but selling and understanding. So, you know, they, they asked me to come in and help them with those, those parts, but that leader had already started the mindset of the reason we exist is to deliver customer value. And he was, he was, he had just kind of trans mathematically transposed my, my rule of business that the purpose of every business is to create more value for a customer than it costs you to deliver. That, that sounds just like a mathematical restatement. You know, the yeah. two are just mathematical restatements of the same yeah. law, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So Mark, when you, when you're working with these various organizations and you try to implement this, what kind of mindsets do you see? I mean, this is one mindset. This, this person had already evolved to that level, right? In yeah. his mind. Uh, so what are the what are the blocks that you see in, in, in leadership mindset and what are the ones which are actually facilitating organizations to move in this direction? Yeah, I think if there's one big thing, um, leaders have been taught through business school and conventional wisdom to divide labors and to create roles and to create corporate silos. And then to optimize all work within the silo and write good processes so that one silo plays nice with the next silo. And it, that is a very happy assumption that your silos, which have become inwardly focused, become operationally focused on the work within the silo, optimize everything for operations within my silo so that my silo operates most efficiently, and then hopefully interact smoothly with the, the, the next silo doing the same thing. The mathematics of it is if there is one silo in a company, there are zero cracks for things to fall through between silos. Go to two silos, and there's two cracks from A to B, from B to A. Three silos, the cracks go from two to six. Yeah. Four silos, it goes to 12. Yeah. The more organizational silos, the better you have to be at resolving conflicts between the silos. And okay. suddenly, the, the leaders always expect that the process that I wrote is going to do it all. And I don't have to worry about that. And it just never does. And um, working with a lot of engineers in my past, uh, what that's called is optimizing at the component level rather than at the system level. Mm. And you're always going to sub out. And so the mindset of a leader to realize I've got to get everybody focused outside of the silo and onto the customer's outcome. That's the key. As soon as you start doing that, then uh, as soon as you start successfully doing that, then the momentum can shift. Uh, as long as you have people focused inwardly into their silos, you're going to be very frustrated. You suggest in, uh, in one of the chapters that sales organizations should become expert at the customer's business yes that's sort of in my mind is a conflicting uh, place to get to not conflicting because there is anything wrong with being expert in a customer's business but the assumption that you can be an expert of what the customer does day in day out and they are trying to create their customer value and you can yeah. become an expert is, is sort of a complex expectation very perceptive question, Subhanjan, very perceptive. Here's the thing. In my world, in complex sales, uh, the average is there are 6.8 people at the customer who are in the buying committee. Yeah. And 6.8 is growing. Uh, and it's it often goes to in the 20s. Every one of those people is probably director level or below which means they are creatures of a department or a silo or a discipline. So every single one of those 6.8 people understands their own silo, but doesn't understand how, how all the silos fit together. And if your product affects some business process that touches more than one silo, mm. your customers understand less about that than you as the seller. 
So you understand the subtleties of your technology better, and you understand how the the reaches and the tentacles of the value of the customer outcomes that your product reaches. Uh, I work with a company that sells capital equipment into hospitals. Think of the equipment that processes blood samples into blood test results. Hmm. You sell to clinicians and to technicians and to the lab manager and to the doctors and to the buying committee and to purchasing, but nobody sold to the risk management office in the hospital. And this company had was more reliable for more years. And if you start selling to the risk managers, if you add from the 6.8 people, let's add another one, risk managers, mm. because- by being more accurate, we're reducing the number of misdiagnoses. How much do misdiagnoses cost hospitals? And here in the United States, where we're very litigious, <laughs> the number is very big. Um, so it's not so when one of those happens, it's a very expensive incident. And so as the seller of my equipment, I don't have to understand everybody's silo better than they do. But I have to understand their business in ways that none of those people understand their own business. I am the expert in the holistic how my product or service can help my company, my customer, and to help guide that customer through those implications that they are not aware of and could never be aware of because they are silo-oriented individuals. That's my job as the seller to help guide them through a more holistic view of their own business. Which also brings me to the thought that possibly that's where the role of the sales organization comes about, where you need to ensure that learning that is happening in other part of the organization, in the sense with some other account or some other salesperson, all that knowledge that is coming in should be transferred to everybody else, where they are going to a third party and so on. Oh, absolutely. So at this at this uh, mystery company, my my formative foundational company, we had one question that we always asked. And the question everybody asked everybody else is what's our value? So a salesperson would go on a sales call and they'd call me in to say, I think, you know, I was one of 75 product managers. Uh, I think I found a customer who wants your product rather than any of the other 74. And I would ask him, what's our value? And then he'd convince me and I would get a, a drawing change. I would you know, draw a prototype to confirm with the customer and, and internally that this is what we want. And I would take it to my engineer to sign it. And even if it was a very simple change, this engineer would ask me, what's our value? And then I would go to manufacturing saying, hey, I've got a customer very interested in this. They would like to have us prototype you know, 20 or 30 feet of this cable. And I see you're running one almost identical to it next Wednesday. Could you just, at the end of the run, take the gray coloring out and put some red coloring in? Because this one here, they, they need red. And I couldn't get them to make a simple change like that without having the operator of the machine ask me, Mark, sure, what's the value? What's the value in that company unpacks to... It, it was a simple question for a very complex concept. What is the customer's business? Mm. How do they make money? How does our product help them make money? How does this variation help them make more money? How much more money? Mm. And how much of that money can we ask for and capture as our price premium? If I couldn't answer all those questions, that entire narrative for the ma machine operator, Nothing happened. Mm. So as a culture, we were also focused on the customer's world, the customer's business, understanding the customer's business, understanding the customer's money-making machine and how we were going to help that money-making machine operate better. My machine operator had the kind of business acumen most salespeople don't. It's, I mean, as you're telling, I, I'm finding it quite fascinating, actually, that you could have somebody... A machine operator would be like really low down the pegging order, right? 
you are just executing orders. I mean, come on, uh, you know how to operate a machine and what's your business asking us about what's our value? This, this is very interesting. And that brings me to the chapter that you wrote about finding value from your differentiation. Yeah. And before we get to that, uh, three times out of four, I mean, a majority of the time, they would, I could regular, I would regularly get, well, I see why you wrote this, made this drawing like this, but the way you described it, you know, we could also do this. Uh, we could make this additional change that nobody thought of that you would only think of if you're the machine operator. You'd only think of if you're the process engineer. You'd only think of as your design engineer. And of those three or four times, a good chunk of them, maybe a minority, but a really healthy chunk, those ideas added value. Mm. And that's why it works so well, because everybody understands their role and I didn't understand the machine operators. Well, when I started, they made me, you know, run a machine for a week so that I would know it well enough to at least be conversant. Mm. Um, but I still, I, I had people come up with brilliant ideas that added huge amounts of value. Yeah. So your value only comes from your differentiation. Um, a friend of mine calls it um, will I value and which one value. Will I value is, in, in this company, it was wire and cable. I've got to get a cable. And if I don't get cable, there's, there, right, there's value just from anybody's cable. There's additional value from my differentiation that I can actually charge a price premium for. And that's what my friend calls which one value. Your differentiated value, your priceable, price premiumable value, if you will, comes from your differentiated capabilities. And tiny bits of differentiation can lead to huge differentiation in price. I was riding a, uh, a train, an elevated train over a portion of Oakland, California. And I rode above a street, I rode above this street intersection that had two petrol stations, two gas stations across the street from each other on the same intersection. And the price of gasoline on one was 15% higher, 40 cents a gallon higher than the gas station across the street. And it's gasoline. The gasoline came into California through a single pipeline. There's one refinery that makes the gasoline that goes into both of those sets of pumps. Now, they put a little bit of these additives in this gas station and this branded set of additives in the other, but it's the same gas. But one of them is worth more than the other. Why does that high-priced gasoline station, why is it even in business? Yeah. Because maybe um, when I'm driving... I do two right-hand turns to get into and out of one, and it's two left-hand turns to get into the other. One has cleaner bathrooms. One has better coffee. One has fresher hot dogs. Whatever it is. Yeah. Right? But for whatever reason, a tiny difference makes a huge difference in the charge I can price. And gasoline is a very low, petrol in your country, is a very low margin product. Yeah. Uh, he, here in the States, the average margin is three cents a gallon. So imagine being able to charge 43%, 43 cents of profit margin versus three cents of profit margin. Yeah, and, and you're so right, because uh, like I, I speak with a lot of people most products are commodity products. They have multiple alternatives. I mean, it's very rare that you say, I have a product which is so unique that nobody can replace it, the product itself. I mean, it's very, very rare. Most products, it doesn't matter, software. I mean, so gasoline, for example. So being able to create those differentiations can become the key to profitability and existence, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. and the average salesperson buys into the customer's narrative that usually in my world comes from a purchasing agent saying there's three other companies just like you. Mm. 
And that salesperson says, I have no differentiation. I've got to compete on price. And the elite salesperson goes in and talks to the risk manager and finds out, I have huge amounts of value because of my reliability. Both of them meet spec, but I meet, uh, I, I'm more reliable. Um, friend of mine works at, I think he might have just retired. He worked at a, a famous electrical connector company. So imagine, you know, the connectors that connect every box in our world. And this was a connector that was going to go into a commercial aircraft. Okay. And, and so um, pretty important boxes and pretty high risk if the thing goes bad. They were competing with a con another connector company that was uh, from China, very low cost. Both of them met the specification and it was a, a military specification. So it was you know, a pretty demanding specification. Both meet spec, but my friend's connector company differentiated in the quality of the gold plating on the contacts. Mm -hmm. And gold is still the gold standard for electrical connectors because it conducts electricity very well and does not oxidize or corrode at all. And so you can uh, leave it out in the open and it's still gold forever. Yeah. And so having the gold without any microscopic pinholes, the microscopic pinholes are where the corrosion bleeds out and, and yeah. ruins the electrical connection. And in so that gold makes it not only last longer, but last longer through many connect and disconnect cycles. And this gold plating was over and above the specification. And so they were having a hard time selling until they went to that. And this was, you know, a box that goes into an aircraft. And so they went to that company. Then there were 6.8 people in the design center, you know, like the interconnect and the box interconnect and the proving people and, and purchasing and so forth. He went to the, the, a field service organization of his customer's product and ask the service technicians, what happens when these connectors go bad? Well, it starts with an intermittent connection problem that appears and disappears at random times. How hard is it to find an intermittent? It's a nightmare. What happens when you can't find it? Well, a $75 million or $200 million airplane sits on the ground because I can't find the problem. And what happens to your company that makes the box? Well, eventually they make us pay a penalty because, and we're not a preferred vendor because we can't fix our own products, our own boxes. So the gold plating sounds like it's pretty important. Yes, it's critical. And I don't care how much additional you pay for it. Now they didn't. So the the amount of price premium is is up for negotiation. But now that tiny difference in microscopically detectable pinholes in your gold plating, talk about a tiny difference, making a huge difference for your your customer. Both of them met spec. Sure. So you, I cannot be convinced. Given that example, given gasoline, I worked for uh, GE Capital, and I was a commercial real estate lender. So I sold money. Tell me that there is a commodity, more commodity than money. Ask any economist if there's a, a, a commodity, more commodity, more fungible than money. True. I was able to sell my money at a price premium, a significant price premium to sophisticated buyers who were chief financial officers of major public companies who knew better. They weren't going to pay extra for the money just because it came from me, just because it came from GE Capital. They did not care. What they cared about was the fact that GE could deliver during the financial crisis when nobody else could. What they cared about was GE could structure uh, deal terms in ways that nobody else could. Mm. And that was worth a huge price premium. Tiny differences make huge difference if you understand 
how they impact your customer. You know, that connector company could not have gotten, could not have achieved that price premium if they didn't know their customer, how that customer made business, their how that customer made money, the problems that that customer, how they made money, how they lost money. And they, if you didn't know that the these boxes have to get serviced by a field service organization and what the costs in failed, you know, in an intermittent product were, you have to have some pretty decent business acumen and you cannot just be that kind of salesman who gets the spec from the customer and sells to the spec. You just can't. I have a slightly different question, not not from this point of view, but from the buyer point of view. Would you not think that they would have figured this out and they would have made that part of the spec that it has to be like pinhole-less plating? Eventually, they will add they will mm-hmm. add that. But you know, if you're a, a silo junkie mm. at a company, say I need the connector and. You know, I'm going to just buy to this military spec. And if it was good enough for, you know, my company's Air Force, it's good enough for me. And yeah. and the the spec organization, the, the military spec organization designed this spec and, and really thought about the issues. They thought of it so carefully, I don't have to think of it any better. Fair enough. So, you, you, can, you know, you can you could easily see everybody just finds a cheap, easy way to get through it. And mil spec is well, that's a pretty easy way to... Um, yeah, because there's there's dozens and dozens of test processes and specifications that go into the mill spec. You look at that mountain of specification, and as a design engineer, you think, man, that must be pretty complete. Fair enough. Uh, you you talk about profitability happens at the top line. Yes, that that sounds uh, quite counterintuitive. Tell us a bit about that. Well, thank you. Um, it does. Uh, as a former product manager with product and loss responsibility, uh, I could try to manage a whole lot of different cost lines and go through, get your company's P&L statement out and change every line by 5%. And the only, and the lot, and then look at the net income line before taxes. And because, yeah, for taxes, uh, look at your net income line and see what by what percentage a change of 5% in any given cost line changes that. Mm. And let me explain it another way. If you drop your, if you are in negotiations with a customer and you drop your price by $1, one rupee, one euro, whatever, your cost to deliver hasn't changed by anything. So now your profit do- your profit went down by that dollar because your cost nothing on your P&L changed. And it turns out that companies have done this studies but that dollar is a dollar that you took off of your bottom line and you gave it to your customers. And there is no more profit there's no more high leverage place than your price to change. A change in of 1% in price at the average Fortune 1000 company is an 11.1% change in profitability. Mm. 1% at the top line is an 11% change at the bottom line. And for any other cost line that you have, it's almost never more than 4 or 5%. It might be, I mean, the biggest one might be your human capital, your labor costs. Mm. How hard is it to change your labor costs by 5%? Very. That's almost impossible. And even if you do, you get half, one third of the effect that you got from a 1% change in price. So price is by far the most powerful level to profit. Your cost didn't change. So every dollar that you give to your customers was a profit dollar you gave to them. There, there can be good reasons to give my customers profit dollars. But we use a lot more reasons than just the good ones. There's the easy way out, right? It is. And we've been taught that in, in economics class that dropping prices re- increases demand. And... 
That is true when the commodity is a true commodity and there's no differentiation, which I've said is not true. It's true when the customer knows about all the differentiation of all the products in the world, which can't be true. And it's true when your differentiation doesn't give the customer any change in outcome, which is never true. So that academic, and it's also true in the aggregate, not at the individual transaction level. So that academic teaching that dropping price is going to increase demand has no bearing on the individual level. And as a matter of fact, there's many times when dropping your price makes your customer suspicious that you don't have the value that you have been claiming you had all along. You know, the the whole point of designer clothing is that the high price communicates or declares value. The price declares your value. And so dropping your price declares less value. We live in an era of digital products, right? Lots of, yep. lots and lots of money of organizations, of companies are spent in digital products, softwares, cloud services, yep. and so on and so forth, where incremental cost is really low. Yeah. How does dropping price impact there? Except for the psychology bit. The psychology bit, I understand that, oh, if you're selling it cheap, you may not be a good product. You may have some security issues. You may not be hosted properly. You may not have uptime and so on and so forth. But if I keep that aside, does the same thing apply to digital products is my question. With digital products and any high margin product, um, there is the temptation to think my cost is negligible so I can easily discount the price. And if, if I make the sale, any margin is... It's almost all margin anyway, so I'll be more profitable. But that customer pretty soon teaches all the other customers that you've dropped your price. So now you've got to drop your price to everybody. Mm. Uh, If you do that price drop at the end of the month, uh, I worked with a sales training company um, where at the end of, you know, the, the salesperson knew the customer was going to buy, they were locked in, they had decided to buy, but the budget doesn't open up until the first of next month. And the company would come in, circumvent the salesperson, call the company and say, if you will sign before the end of this month, we'll give you a 50% discount. Mm. Again, because it was high margin, it was going to be profit. And they wanted to report some sales that month. And the customer said, I can't. I do not have budget. So it wouldn't sell. But on the third of the next month, guess what they would say? If that price was good last month, that price is good now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so that salesperson took a 50% commissionectomy. Hmm. That market has been bastardized forever because that company you know, pretty soon somebody from that company goes to somebody else and some other company. And so the word of your real pricing rather than your book pricing gets around in a big hurry. Yeah, yeah. And so very little good stuff happens. You train your customers and suddenly, and with all due respect, Subhanjan, you wanted to take the price declares value aspect out you can't. Mm. It's not out. It's there. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, bad things, other bad things besides that do happen, but that one always happens in conjunction with. Right. Right. So, so let's wrap this up with your, with your final question, radical value culture. Why bother? It makes business more fun. It makes business more profitable. It makes your, it helps your customers appreciate you more. Your customer relationships are closer. Your forecasts are more accurate. We can, we could have had a whole discussion about that. True. Um, all the good things you want about your business get better, and all the bad things about your business start to recede. You know, the the mediocrity, the um, squabbling between silos, mm. the people 
marking time and not knowing how their job connects to the success of the organization. All that stuff goes away or at least recedes. Um, and so you're, you're having more fun and making more money and your customers appreciate you better. And you can now call yourself an elite company because you're in very rarefied air. Bits About Books is brought to you by Pitchlink, the buyer-seller engagement platform. Pitchlink makes buying easy by enabling high-quality engagement between buyers and sellers through its presentation and discussion modules. Sellers create customized sales narratives using sales collaterals and personal videos and reach out to prospects through a non-intrusive, buyer-qualified engagement. Pitchlink requires no installation or download and holds the entire repository of sales collaterals and buyer-seller conversations. Talk to us to know more about how you can engage with customers without intuition. Call us on 99021-631-32. Mark, thank you for coming on Bits About Books. And I I would like to have some of those other discussions that we spoke about because I, I think it's important. I mean, more than anything else, it is important to put this out there, um, which I'm sure you are doing otherwise, but uh, it would be wonderful to do that with you. I'd be thrilled to come back. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. We have a fantastic lineup over the next couple of episodes with great conversations on breakthrough books. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you do not miss a single episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for being with us today on Bits About Books, where we talk to authors about breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. We hope this conversation helped inform and motivate as we all navigate a rapidly changing business environment. For us, these are enlightening conversations enriched with knowledge and expertise. We encourage you to go out and buy the book to learn firsthand and implement some of the great ideas we discussed today. We hope to have you with us again in the next exciting episode of Bits About Books. If you liked what you heard, Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from and give us a rating while you are at it. This BizCast original podcast is produced for Pitchlink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform where the mission is to make buying easy. Hosted by Subhanjan Sarkar and produced by Rajiv Aditya. See you next time and have a wonderful day.